This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. You ready to go? Yeah, what's that? Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. And before we get into it, with my friend Nick Anderson of Nanda Knives, I'm Jeff Fader, obviously. Let me talk to you about our sponsor, Axe Wax. That's right, Axe Wax. Axe Wax is all-natural, food-safe wax for your hammers, axes, your knives. I know a lot of people, not a culinary guys, are using it for their handles. They're using it for the steel. It's all-natural and nothing bad. There's no boil linseed oil. There's no petroleum byproducts. You can put it on your boots. You can put it on your hair. Some of my listeners have been putting it in their hair, and <laughs> boom. What can you, I mean, fine. It's, it's all natural. So go to axewax.us, put in promo code FULLBLAST10, you get 10% off. How good is that? They got good T-shirts, too. Go pick up a couple of them T-shirts. And thank you to the listeners because the bandsaw is on its way. The Axewax bandsaw is on its way, and we're going to keep going with uh, Axwax. So go check them out, support them. If you support them, you're helping me and bada bing, bada boom. My guest today is a fascinating individual. Nick Anderson has, of Nanda Knives, has a very interesting history. He's an artist, he's a glassblower, broadcaster, knife maker, world traveler, and he's in the South, he's in the San Francisco Bay Area with all those metal patients like Lee Arapach <laughs> and Jay, Jay, uh, Jay Morgan. Jay Morgan? Did I get that right? Jay Morgan, that's right. They share a shop. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Jeff? Good, dude. Spring is here. Spring is here. That's how, awesome. How are things in San Francisco? Are you in San Francisco or Oakland? We're in Oakland over here. How is I, it over in Oakland right now? Um, it's actually gorgeous. Um, yeah, we had kind of like a cold spell like past couple of weeks, but it's been picking back up and uh, definitely feeling the, the springtime being here. I mean, as soon as like the daylight savings hit, like everything just got so nice, you know, that's yeah. always like the point of the year where it's just like, it feels great. The last, every time I think of the Bay Area and your area, because I know you're in the same area as, as Le- Leah. Right. We're a block apart from each other, actually. We're going to talk about that. All I can think of is that picture of her on her Instagram with her, her glasses on. She's got a, a chain link <laughs> fence behind her. And then hell's the hell is opening up in the sky. Dude, I know the exact picture. That That's... is the that is how I picture where you guys work all the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, that part of the year was so absolutely insane. Uh, that very day, I was actually up north visiting my parents in uh, Humboldt County, where they live in Northern California. Um, but for some reason, it was simultaneously the same exact way up there. And I remember it was like one of those days in like uh, Scandinavia or something where like, not that I've been there, but uh, it felt like the sun never came up. I mean, that dim glow that she had in the background was probably the brightest part of the day. And uh, that was just insane. Um, how- how did you end up in a shop next to the, to, those, to those? And who's over in that shop, by the way? Um, yeah, so I kind of got really lucky. Uh, I guess um, I share a shop with Jim Austin, also known as James Austin is his formal name. Um, <clears throat> so it's uh, he and I and then a, another uh, kind of like bladesmith, blacksmith tool maker named Eli Sedaris, uh, who actually makes some super cool like... Uh, kind of like blacksmith or like kind of like forge style knives and, and, and awesome hammers. He does, he's a really clean finish, uh, studied with Seth Gould. And then we have a friend, Dan Brubaker, who's also in the shop and he's not in too much, but great guy too. Um, but yeah, so Jim's the owner of the shop. Um, 
I met Jim in 2016 at the California Blacksmithing Association Spring Conference. Um, he was doing an axe making demo up there, and this was actually when I lived in Thailand. But I would come back every year for like probably a month or so. Um, and I had just so happened to be back at just the right time when this CBA spring conference was going on. And, um, I had zero interest in blacksmithing at that point. Um, my mom's boyfriend at the time, uh, was into it and, you know, coming from a glass background, I'd always been interested in anything related to like making art with fire. So I figured I'd check it out. Um, but yeah, I met Jim at that conference. He was doing an axe making demo and, I didn't ever think I'd really see him much again. Uh, just a cool guy, uh, you know, and then, you know, had that whole stint in Thailand, which we'll probably talk about, but oh, for um, yeah. sure. after coming, after coming back, um, I didn't have a shop for a while and I felt so much like a fish out of water that I was kind of freaking out. Um, so I, there's a place called the crucible in Oakland here where I did some volunteering. I mean, I was just chomping at the bit to like, do anything to get behind like you know to get like access to a forge and have like anvil and hammer and just anything to do some work so um the quickest path to that was the crucible and so i worked there for a while and then um was recommended to go check out uh, jim's shop uh, again by a guy named jeff pringle who's kind of like a sword maker and woods he does a lot of like kind of like wood smelting and stuff like hmm. that um and I just so happened to get there right at the right time where Jim was kind of looking for somebody. Uh, we had these like open houses or I mean, had in the sense of pre-COVID uh, every other Wednesday uh, had these open houses. And so uh, Jeff told me to just go to one of those. And so I figured I'd just bring my knives to share and stuff. And um, yeah, we all just hit it off really well, really quick. And I, you know, I sometimes when I want something, I'll like, you know, I'll, I'll drop any hint possible to like, you know, see if like there's shop space available or whatever. And, uh, yeah, he just, he just had space available. He also needed help with this massive project he was working on. I was like, I got you. Like, I'll totally help out. So it was like the sweep the floors thing. Like I would have, I would have done anything at that point just to like get access to a shop. So that's, um, that's pretty, I I just, I like the fact that there are so many talented people in one area. Yeah. That always, I had a, when I was back in the day in, in Brooklyn, we had a, a, a building and there was like 10 different sculptors there. And it was really kind of neat. And this is before Instagram and social media, but be, to be around other talented people on their own path. We weren't all just like goofing around. There was, everyone right. was on their own path and you end up always becoming more uh, inspired. It's a total accelerator. Yeah. In every sense, um, I feel like you learn so much, just like, I, I just call it osmosis, but yeah. um, just being around people doing something, like just seeing what they're doing and what's working and what's inspiring just on a day in, day out basis um, is so helpful. It, it, it just accelerates things so much. Um, I actually had my first taste of that back in Santa Cruz. Before I lived in Thailand, I lived in Santa Cruz for uh, nine years. And I lived in a place there called the Tannery Arts Center, which was this kind of like a project built by this organization called Artspace. And they built a bunch. They definitely have one in New York or or more than one in New York. Um, They built these kind of like spaces around the U.S., which are kind of like uh, not for profit housing situations. Um, They're not like Section 8 or anything, um, even though they have a little segment of that. They're, I guess they're just more like a not-for-profit entity that like gives affordable housing to artists. And so 
I found myself in like 2009 living in this space with 220 other, like not every single person was an artist, but 220 people uh, who most of which were artists. And that was an insane experience as well. I mean, talk about like, you're not just sharing the space with people that are doing the same exact thing as you. So um, you get this taste of like, um, like kind of, you just get a feel for like what can be done with all sorts of various medias. And, uh, and that was super cool. And, 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 you know, besides that, just like seeing how artists live and make it is probably even more helpful or has been more helpful to me because I feel like in order to make it, there is such like a kind of struggle and sacrifice to, um, get by. I mean, it's kind of like cliche to say, but it, there's a total reality to it. Um, at least that's how it was for me. And that's how it was for a lot of people, you know, um, around there. Like, uh, it was super helpful to have affordable housing and it was super helpful to see like how people like, uh, make a business out of their art and how people like, uh, promote themselves and get themselves out of the world and, and, and get into galleries and stuff like that. Um, well, you end up getting a degree of energy. You get like, Absolutely. even, you know, that I think that that's the key. Also, the other key is, is you need to be surrounded by people who are motivated. Yeah. There's nothing worse than having to be around other people who need to be motivated. I think that Completely. <laughs> you end up becoming, I'm telling you, it ends up becoming like a, let's go get some beer. You know, yeah, totally. Let's, Ooh, I'm it, so glad let's, you said that. Let, let What it turns into is, I got a great idea. Let's not work and let's go to the bar. Dude, that's the what let's happens get a exactly. beer thing. I, I have to turn down getting beers so much. It's like, yeah, that exact thing is like the hangout stuff. Like when I go to the shop, like I can't hang out. I just can't hang out. I can't drink beer unless it's like the very end of the day. Like, it's just not what I'm there for. And it never, like, that was always a thing for me, too. A hundred, I have a kind of a no drinking policy in my shop just yeah. because I'm just so convinced that I'm going to get, you know, I'm looking at a power hammer here, saws and all this stuff. And I'm just convinced I'm going to get too comfortable. And then next thing you know, it's going to be like a trip to the hospital. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't think that, I don't think, it's just not a good idea. And what happens is, is like, I had a guy back in my shop who used to, he was a painter and he used mm-hmm. to come down to our shop to throw darts and it got to the <laughs> point where it was really, really distracting because it's like, yeah. he's throwing the darts and, and it was like very much long lines. We asked him not to, and then he just kind of didn't get the point. And then what happened was, which was, I was, I guess it was, I feel bad about it to this day. I built, <laughs> I took a plow shear and welded it onto a hinge that when the hinge was closed, it covered the dartboard. And then the darts were end up in a locked, you know, box. And yeah. he came down one day and saw this giant rhinoceros nipple on the covering the dartboard and he blew up. He's just like, All you had to do is tell me not to come down here. I didn't what kind of friend are you? And this is telling me this is a very, he thought it was like we were making fun of him or something like that. I was like, Yo, we asked That's him a million reaction. times and then we had to break out he didn't listen, so we had to break the welder out. So just to get you get to get to get an idea, you started out as a, would you, did you go to college for glass blowing? I didn't actually. I, so I was really lucky to have like super supportive parents around, uh, everything artistic. Um, my mom was, she was a painter back in the day. Um, and she was also a lab technician too, but she was really passionate about painting. So 
they always like they saw that I had something with art, I had a total like affinity for it and I wanted to do it. So um, when I was like in high school, I forget exactly where I saw it. We'd gone on this trip to Europe and I'd seen these glass blowers in Vienna. Um, oh, sorry, was it Venice or Vienna? I, I'm totally blanking on the actual it's space. V, any, any town, any European town, the V is fine by me. It I always me. mix those two up. But, no problem. Um, but uh, I, I can't remember if that's exactly what made me want to do it. But I, I, it was like with knife making, I had the same thing. But I just all of a sudden was like obsessed with the idea of doing it. It just like I saw somebody doing it somewhere. It was fascinating. And I just so wanted to do it. Um, so my parents told me they would match whatever I saved to get a glass working setup. And <clears throat> so um, the kind of glass I was getting into was called lamp working. It's with a torch. It's not like hot glass where you have like a furnace full of molten glass. Um, right. And so, yeah, uh, you know, there's a, it's like a thousand probably dollars to get started if you want. So, you know, I had to work to save money and they were very gracious and kind of matching whatever I saved, which I think is an awesome model um, because it does put some like uh, responsibility on the kid to do it also. But um, yeah, we got, I saved up enough and, and they matched the other half and got this whole glass blowing set up with some kind of like more basic uh, equipment to start with. But that got me started. And, you know, I was in high school and like, of course, I was like making some pipes and stuff on the side. Cause, like, sure. That's, <laughs> I mean, of course, that's, that's day one shit. You got to do that. That's right? day one shit. <laughs> And and you're from um, Humboldt, for Christ's sakes. I mean, I mean, let's not be, let's not, I mean, what the, I mean, this is like, you're a glass blower and you're from Humboldt County. And all, what, I mean, come on. I mean, it's just like, what are you going to do? Make doorstops, for Christ's well, sake? It was, it was Reading, which is three hours from Humboldt, but my oh, other okay, family right, lived well. in Humboldt. So I was very familiar with Humboldt. And in fact, that was where I got introduced to the very thing that made me interested in pipe making. So. <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, it makes perfect sense. Um, so, you know, I started with that. And. After a while, I kind of realized I didn't like the pipe making scene. Like I didn't like being a pipe maker for the sake of like, having to deal with shops. There was something like really, I, I hated dealing with shops. I can only imagine um, what these people are like at head shops. Yeah, oh exactly. God. Yeah, you've Can you imagine? Head. I can't imagine oh, what it's like dealing just, with the manager or one dude from a fucking head shop. Dude, head what shop, was that man. like? What was I want to know? Dealing with head shop like, guys. Hey, man, could you like, just put those? Could you just put those pipes next to the the whippets, please? Dude, yeah. And like, they also have crack pipes under the counter, like legitimately. Oh my and god. Dude, they call. Who, who knows what they're trying to sell those for? Like oil domes, or I, I forget. But like, uh, you know, people are smoking uh, herbs out of those for sure. But um, you know, what is it like going to a head shop and working with a head shop? It's like the feeling, like, was always like entering it was always like this layer or like cloud of darkness descends over you like that's what i always felt like and <laughs> and you're not gonna get paid it's all in consignment right oh yeah there was a huge oh. consignment element um which that is the craziest thing like having to run after people uh oh. you know um but some did pay out right but they are you know they're super sharky with prices and um yeah so and and with that also like i Equally so, I didn't really like the like the, the, the glass blower scene of the pipe makers themselves. Like nothing I mean, I know some like I don't want to say anything bad about them. There's some great ones out there, but as a whole, like when I compare it to like the Bladesmith community, it's like light years apart. Um and yeah, again, I, I don't really wanna like 
trash talk the pie maker community because there's some Go people ahead, they're not listening in, to this podcast maybe <laughs> the maybe uh anna de leon maybe maybe she's listening but she'll she yeah. okay she'll with us she's making awesome stuff she rocks mm-hmm. <laughs> but um yeah so anyways i after that i kind of got more into um i guess my like real like the thing that i felt like i could sell was pendants like glass jewelry um and when i was 19 years old um my parents i was going to san jose state and my parents um just kind of told me that you know at some point they'd already told me they weren't paying for the the full college thing so at one point i was on my own and um i at one point i realized i kind of had to scramble to either get some sort of job when i was 19 and i didn't want to like do that if i could avoid it so i just started making pendants and selling them on ebay like way back in the day and like Hmm. It was crazy because I was 19 years old. Like, you have no money ever. And, like, it just really worked. Like, something clicked. And so I started this like, little, like, eBay business selling glass jewelry. And that kind of, like, grew into just doing, you know, more and more and more and more glass jewelry to where I started doing some shows. I started doing, like, the Monterey Market some years after that every week and, um, you know, various little, like, craft fairs and stuff like that. So I kind of supported myself on that for some years and then I got a couple jobs here and there too you know I'd go in and out of it but um yeah um glass was great can I just ask you a quick question yeah when you're 19 and your parents are asking you what you're making with all the with the the equipment you help match (laughs) did you tell did you tell what when they said when they said so Nick what are you what are you working on now and you're still talking about I got a set of pipes I got to bring down to the head shop. What did they say? I was so bad at hiding it, man. I was so bad at hiding (laughs) it. So you were hiding it. You were hiding it from them. Oh, yeah, for sure. I was, like, hiding it-ish. Like, they they were like, dude, just please don't put that in front of our faces. Like, just do something to hide it, you know. Uh, But, no, I also got in trouble at school for, like, I I got caught with selling pipes. And it was, uh, it was, it it was like. Oh, yeah, because that's where the money is, right? It was in high school. I was, so you're, I've always had this kind of like business, like hustler thing, kind of. I've always liked selling stuff. So, what kind of um, trouble did you get into? You know, it wasn't too bad, fortunately. Like, um, I got suspended for a week. <laughs> All right. Well, you know. But, uh, how much, if you don't mind me asking, back in, in high school, how uh-huh. much were you selling a pipe for? Uh, shoot, probably like 50 bucks. Pretty good. I bet you were it's, moving them too. Yeah, it was like, it was it was good money back then. Like you know, I worked at Round Table Pizza when I was sixteen years old, and they paid me six seventy five an hour to work in the most terrible pizza place. And contrasting that with like making something out of art and selling it, like it was absolutely the answer. You know, you um, had to do it. That is yeah. oh. this this selling pipes in <laughs> high school was your first foray into trying to sell art. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. I, I, I can't I can't fault you for that. And if you're, I'm your parents, I'm torn. If I'm your parents, I'm torn because <laughs> I'm super torn because I'm just like he's he, this is the this is the the crux of the artist business person. Yeah, he's found a market. He's using his labor and his techniques to make something to bring to market that people want. Yeah, but there's a little bit of problem. I find that to be <laughs> fascinating. Yeah. It was, uh, it, sucked. It, it, it did suck to get like, quote unquote, busted or whatever. It was, yeah, yeah. It was such a ridiculous show too. Oh. They like, 
they like they like set up a whole good cop bad cop thing even like it was yeah. just it was so dumb but <laughs> you know but it's but you know what it would be really other weird is if you were instead of you got you got your help your your parents help you get the glass blowing stuff if you yeah. got the forging stuff and you were selling knives in school now, oh, that might yeah, have been dude. a different situation altogether <laughs> Yeah, especially these days, God, it was probably better that I got caught for that and just yeah. like, realized I had to smarten up a little bit. You only got a month. You only got a week. Yeah, it's got a week. And dude, that, that ain't week, the end of the world. I was right, wondering so- what the hell this week was. I was just off. I played video games. I went back to school after that, and I was like, made huh, more pipes. Right. <laughs> it's like, all right, I'm getting sent home. I'm going to make more pipes. And I'm going to bring them all back in a backpack. God damn. I was I would have been too afraid. I was too chicken. I was I had a major fear of authority. I could never have done that. Oh yeah, I've I've heard you talk about that too. Yeah. I had friends I, mean... I had friends who sold candy. Like I had a we had a friend named Sperry. He was such a good dude and he actually mm-hmm. doesn't live too far from me now. He would give he would have like a an order sheet. And you can order the candy that you want, and then he'd bring it in the next day. And he just had a locker filled with candy. It was a we we were going to school in Manhattan. You can get candy anywhere, but people <laughs> wanted to get candy from him. And he just like this is high school too. It was like, we were, I mean, it's, it, it, people were just giving him money. He was giving him candy, and it wasn't and it wasn't just like yeah, right, Fader. There was no. This is they were getting. He was selling candy in the school, and he was. I was like. God bless him. God bless him. He had a backpack full of candy, and he was just taking orders and selling candy. And he got into the stock market. He was a business guy. Dude, it's just an, maybe it's an innate thing. I'm not sure. But some kids just have that. They just got to sell stuff. A hundred percent. I think that that's the hardest part of what we do, especially as – and that's the hardest part. And I think you almost cracked the code at a young age. Of course, you got pinched. But the hardest part is – and we talk to people on Knife Talk all the time who – they hate their job and then they learned how to make knives on youtube and then all of a sudden someone's saying hey that's super cool i want to buy one and they say how do i transition this into a job but they don't realize that it's business is different than just being passionate about something you know there has to be a degree of you know idea of what you want to do and then the background behind it but I, i i love the fact that i mean that's such a that's a very that's a very that's a great way for you to get involved in yeah, it's a great story. I mean, it sounds dumb because you say, "Yeah, hey, I was selling pipes in high school, I got pinched for it." But it's like, <laughs> I mean, that's exactly what you sh- what should have happened. Totally. I mean, look I, at you now. You're not like working in like, you know, you're not you ha- you're your own man now. One hundred percent. I feel like those early lessons, like also with my parents, like making me have to go out on my own when I was nineteen. Like, I'm so lucky that happened. I, you know, I, I had a bunch of friends that like. Their parents kept paying for school until they were like 26 or 27 years old and they still had no idea what they were going to hmm. do. And like, you know, whatever, everybody's got to figure out their own path and stuff. But the fact that they did that when I was 19 forced me to have to figure it out. And I was like confronted with the possibility of having to move back to Reading, which was like a death sentence to me at that point, because Reading is cool for certain reasons, but it lacks culture seriously. And, right. you know, when I was 18 years old, like I was just chomping at the bit to get out and get out on my own. So after going to San Jose and like, you know, I'd already started meeting friends from Santa Cruz and I, 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 I fell in love with Santa Cruz. So I was already trying to live there. And the idea of moving back to Reading was, was crazy. So it was another one of those cases where I was like, earlier on, it was just like, I just don't please like anything, but working at freaking round table. The other, uh, you know, the second one was like anything, but moving back to Reading. And so it was just this like, you know, uh, mandatory situation where I had to like figure something out or 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 get that consequence. 
But that's the that's see that's the thing that a lot of people don't realize. It's you are hungry, and I talk yeah. about this with other yeah. people. Some people are just not hungry enough to make the sacrifices and decisions in order to to be the way they are. And yeah. I just like the fact that you're able to kind of like get that yeah. at an early age. I'm sure was a giant, a giant step towards the person that you are. Completely, yeah. That that hunger is a topic that is fascinating to me. Um, I think about that so much as in whether like this is also in the sense of having this like innate quality, like what we were talking about with the selling thing, like that hunger, like I, I, I don't exactly know where that comes from. Uh, like my whole life, I've been hit with these impulses that are like, I, I, yeah, it's a hunger. And I so, so want to like see the outcome of something to the point where if it takes like years I, I don't know what it is. Like I'll just have like with knife making, it was always, or with when I was like into painting, like I so badly wanted to see what that painting would look like when I finished it. And like to the point of where it was like extremely frustrating or aggravating to be painting it <laughs> at the earlier stages. Hmm. Um, and that surprises uh, me. I'm surprised by that because hmm. when I look at your work, especially the, the, your newer, the, the most recent knives, yeah, there's such a degree of, and I also, based on you know the the glass blowing and what I what I know that goes into glass blowing and bronze casting, and there is a degree of of uh, force patience that you have to have in order to see the whole thing through, glass blowing especially, but knife make the style of knives that you make now, which are these extraordinarily exquisite uh, mosaic pattern of Damascus uh, with integral bolsters. And mm -hmm. I just, I find it crazy that you had a hard time in the beginning stages. I, I can only imagine mm -hmm. what you, when you got like, when you're slapping together all the steel for the first uh, forge well, <laughs> I'm sure you must be like, you know, furious. Well, I, you know, it's been tempered by time of, of working with all these different mediums. Like I, I definitely like, I learned early on to like, uh, have less attachment to a piece with glass because of the breakage factor. It's there's a high probability of breakage, and as you get more into it, that decreases. But and then with painting, you know, once I got into oil painting, like you got to wait for the freaking layers to dry and stuff. Unless Brutal. and sometimes I'd get in there with a fine brush and just start tweaking it while it was wet. But it's it's definitely been tempered by time. And like I, you know, once I got to bladesmithing, like I, I had gone through so many various trials of like you know, setups and failures with various mediums and stuff that like, I, I, I was able to come to that game with a lot more patience from the get go. And I would say I'm, I'm a naturally patient person. Like, um, when I was a kid, I used to just like, you know, read a ton. I was super into like stuff in nature. I used to just like, uh, just like study and look at stuff all the time. Like I, I, you know, I was never kind of like a kid that needed, uh, like a lot of, um, kind of uh i don't know a, a lot happening like a lot of uh you're self-reliant stimulus yeah yeah so um but yeah by the time i got to bladesmithing like i i was able to um understand that these processes take time and just kind of ride through them i see i think that all of these things are the same like i i have no i don't differ i've gotten the, the older i get the more the actually the kind of more like I'm more interested in enlightenment than I'm interested in anything else. And I find mm. that all these things, uh, any kind of sculpture, structural stuff, carpentry, 
uh, knife making, it all cooking. I think it all comes from the same place, and I and I'm yeah. convinced of it. And I and and I think that I don't think I think that some people I think it gets to the point where you kind of pigeonhole these different um, these different um, disciplines, and they think that they're not the same where they clearly are. Like I just don't see a difference between all of it. So that's I totally why agree. I, you go through a lot of the same processes with. Um expectation and disappointment and also learning something and like having to go through those hoops of like being um new to to the art form and then you know getting a little bit better and then getting a little bit better and getting more equipment and meeting more people in the in in the community and like in in the in the industry and they all have this process of you know uh getting better at it gearing up getting more ingrained in the actual um, industry and community of it. And, and, and yeah, you do go through all those things like every time. And I, so I totally agree with that. Well, so, so you're, you're, what, what get, got you to Thailand? Cause Thailand is such a huge part of your life. You know, yeah, in terms it's such of a huge, yeah. your growth. I mean, I even <laughs> look at your knives that you were making in Thailand and mm-hmm. you were a student of Che Americano. Yes. I see such a huge difference between your work then, inspired by, you know, I would imagine by being a disciple of his. I don't know if disciple right. is the right word. That <laughs> makes it sound like you're <laughs> some, sort of, some sort of zealot, which you're not. But then, I mean, I, I'm fascinated by the fact that, and then how you're, you know, let's just go, how did you get over to Thailand? Yeah, so um, similar to when I was in like Reading and really wanted to get out of Reading after uh, being 18 years old, um, when I was, shoot, this would have been 2012, however old I was there. I guess I was 26, 27. Um, I just so wanted to go travel to Asia. You know, I'd always been super into, like, um, I was really into cooking at that time in my life. And I was really into cooking, like, Thai and Vietnamese food. Um, and I'd always wanted to travel, too. And I, I had traveled to Europe, but those places were never crazy. I mean, let me take that back. Europe was amazing, but I, I wanted to go somewhere that was just much more different. Right. Um, and so, um, I'd had some friends go to Thailand and it just sounded like a super cool idea. And I, you know, it was also more affordable. And so I saved enough money to where I figured I could travel for three months and I just set out to go out there on my own, uh, well with a friend for two weeks and then on my own for the next two and a half months traveling around Southeast Asia. Um, which was kind of like a, um, I guess it was kind of a pilgrimage for me, just in the sense that um, I just I, I just wanted to be out on my own exploring. Um, I really like exploring on my own. I, I think it's like a very like, kind of like a spiritual experience, and so um, and and it was for sure. But um, so I, I definitely, you know, I went to Vietnam and Thailand and Laos and Cambodia and uh, Malaysia. And, um, I fell in love with Thailand. It was, I love the people in Thailand, like more than anything. I love the people in Thailand and the food is incredible too. Like I, I can't think of a single food scene in the world that is as complex and incredible as Thailand's. Um, and so I I was traveling there, um, and I, I met a girl from Switzerland there. Um, we're not together anymore, but, um, but yeah, I met her there and we, um, yeah, we traveled around Thailand together for part of it, um, had an awesome time and yeah, ended up wanting to be together. And so we initially tried to live in each other's, you know, after the three months that I was out there, 
we tried to live in each other's countries and that proved to be very difficult as far as like visas and stuff were concerned. Um, hmm. It's just, you'd be surprised at how hard it'd be for like a Swiss person to live in the U.S. and how hard it'd be for like a, a, an American to live in Switzerland and where she was from. And so I, after Thailand, um, I did some more traveling. I went to India and Nepal with my friends. I'd hiked the Annapurna Trail, which is like up around like Mount Everest. And you go up like to like as high as the Everest Base Camp and stuff. And hmm. um, that was a cool trip. And then um, after that, I, I I went out to live in Switzerland or try to live in Switzerland. And I was willing to do anything to live out there. Um, so I applied to, you know, it proved to be very difficult from the get-go. I applied to the uh, ZHDK art school out there, which is, uh, it, it's it's just like the Swiss pronunciation of ZHDK. Um but I did the full art school application, very like time consuming, you know, it's it's same as any art school application, except you're also applying from out of country. Uh, I also tried to apply for an artist residency in Germany um, and I just got shut down every step of the way. And so we, you know, you only get three months as an American in the Schengen area of Europe at a time and then you need to be gone for three months. So you just can't stay there for more than three months. And so in Thailand. In, this was in Europe still. This was in Switzerland. Right, okay. All right. So in I, Zurich. I, okay. Zurich, so in Switzerland, you can only stay there for three months and then you have to leave for three months? Uh, yeah, the entire Schengen area. It's called the Schengen. It's like a, a conglomerate of countries. Um, and so you, you have to leave the entire Schengen area after three months. And so we decided to try out Thailand and we were like, hey, let's just like see what six months looks like living in Chiang Mai up in the north. And um not to mention, this is now like you met in Thailand. It seems yes. to not be working in the United States or Switzerland. Maybe we need to go back to Swiss. Maybe we need to go back to Thailand to see if this is really going to work again. <laughs> totally. Yeah. 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 I, mean, yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, I totally understand. This just seems like a. Yeah. Such oh, a production. Completely. <laughs> such a production. <laughs> it was a production. It was fun, oh. but oh my god. I'm but sure, so but it's just like. All right, well, back to Thailand. <laughs> That's the craziest thing in the world is because you meet these people, you meet a foreigner in yeah. a foreign country, and yeah. you both can't live together in your own country. So you have to go yes. back to another third-party foreign country in order yeah. to have a relationship. <sighs> it's insane. Yeah, what it's a pain insane. In the ass. It's a total reality. I mean, imagine like different countries than like Switzerland and U.S. paired. I mean, it's a lot harder for other countries to... to, what? to... I mean, it's like how... P.S., this already seems like a relationship cannot possibly work. I mean, unless unless there's <laughs> this is it's all it's in my mind. I'm looking at her and I'm just saying, look, we're having a good time, but I think this is doomed. Our countries don't want us together. I'm, we're not getting married, so let's just let's just you know. I don't mean to step on your story. So. No, you, it's all you go good. back to you go to Chiang Mai. Yeah, and we did feel we we did feel pretty optimistic. You know, we we were like, let's just do whatever it takes to like figure this out, and so. Um, you know, like, and we were like, we were, it, was all, it was also exciting to like think of living in Asia for a while. So we just moved out there. Uh, my good buddy from high school just moved out there with me also because he'd lived out there for a few year, years. Uh, his name is Brian Schwartz. Um, and so he, uh, my girlfriend at the time didn't come out uh, until six months after I had moved there. Um, so we actually, I, uh, we didn't go out there together right from the start. Um, and so, uh, it wasn't six months, but it was, it was, it was, it was less than that. I think it was four it months. It sounds, it sounds bad. Yeah. It was like four months, but I, it all sounds like I, I have this bad feeling. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so, uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I got, I went out there with Brian. He was, I was so cool to have him out there. Cause like 
he knew the culture already. So he like, I got a total head start in knowing like what was cool and what was not to do as far as like cultural stuff and like how to get up and going quick. Like you get a place, you get a motorbike, uh, you need those two things. And like the, the day to day of like commuting everywhere in this like practically metropolitan city of like 2 million people on a motorbike was like such a new thing, but it was like so fun also. And so, um, it was like simultaneously so crazy and so challenging and just so freaking fun too. Um, and like, you know, you're meeting at first when you get out there, you don't know who is where, like as far as like expats, other expats that you can like, you know, meet up with to at least, uh, you know, have some people from where you live and, uh, you know, and like, you definitely don't know many Thai people that are close to you yet. And so, yeah, at first, like it was just a total, it was just a total adventure. Um, yeah. And culture shock massively, massively. Um, and so, yeah. And, uh, so, and then eventually, uh, my girlfriend Miriam at the time, uh, moved, moved out we got a place and, it just turned into like such a cool thing. I mean, like the, uh, like living out there was uh, six months was quickly like, we're like, okay, well at least a year. And then after that, we were like, we started getting hit with the fact that, you know, we might be here longer. And for a long time we were kind of living this like expat life. I mean, you're, you're always an expat when you're out there, but there's, there's a type of expat out there that is like, they want to live out there, but they're living a very, very minimalistic like not quite backpacker life, but very minimalistic. And we started realizing that we might just start needing to consider this place to be a long-term like place to live. And right. so, um, did you have a yeah. job? Did you get a job? I didn't. I, uh, well, so this is something that not a lot of people know about me, but I, I've done web design and, 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 and branding and graphic design stuff, uh, since I was 22 years old. Hmm. And, uh, that worked, uh, remotely, uh, incredibly. And so I had, um, that's something that that's my whole other side job that I do. And it's, yeah, it's, I saw your website. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so, uh, that's, that's a whole other thing that I used to do and still do, but you know, that, that, um, I did that like day in and day out as well as um, the glass blowing stuff when I first moved out there. So I'd get glass orders. I was selling glass, um, shipping it internationally. Um, so I was definitely maintaining the artist hustle. I, I kind of got into like stone cutting stuff for a little while. Um, you know, I've done like non-ferrous jewelry, like non-ferrous metals and stuff. So I've always kind of been interested in small scale jewelry and stuff like that. Um, but uh, <clears throat> yeah, so after maybe like two years of being out there, I, that's when I was traveling back in the U S I'd come back every, almost every year. And I somehow came across that book by David boy. Uh, I think it's just called like knife making. You too can do it or something like that. Or Is you that can the do one where too? he's like standing there, you get a blonde head of hair and he's just staring yeah. at the knife with the grinder next to him. He looked like, he looks like he's got the 1970s blonde haircut. <laughs> totally. That's definitely okay, it. Yeah, I know. I got and like one. all the knives are made out of saw blades. Like yeah, yeah, throughout yeah, the yeah, entire yeah. book. And his, all the finger, his, fi- all his fingers are so grotesque. It's so gross. Oh dude. I remember well, that, but yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, do. Mine are pretty nutty too. <laughs> so you get the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and so uh, 
I, that's like kind of like when I first realized you could, you could make knives. Um, I, I just hadn't considered that that was like a thing that you could do. And so, um, I, it was the same kind of thing to when I got into glass blowing, like that, that, that fascination just like hit me so hard that immediately I just started researching everything I possibly could about knife making. Like it really clicked for me because I've always wanted to do stuff with fire as far as an art form. I've always loved knives because I was super into cooking and I've always, I've always liked knives, you know, from a collector sure. standpoint and stuff. Um, it just clicked so much that I was like, I think this is the perfect thing that I want to do for like the next, who even knows how long, um, if not the rest of my life. And so, um, yeah, so, you know, I was just here in the U.S. for a short time. So I, I found myself back in Thailand all of a sudden with this like absolute infatuation with bladesmithing. And right when I got back, my my friend um, Brian uh, he was like, he was like, dude, you got to meet this guy. He had no idea I was into knife or interested in knife making. He was just like, you got to meet this guy, Ben. Uh, he's like getting into making his own knives. And I was like, I was like, oh my God, really? Like, I, I didn't even tell you, but like, this is, I, I just like started getting into this back when I was just visiting back home. And so he connected us and my Ben or my, my friend Ben from France became a very, very quick friend. And we got into bladesmithing at the exact same time. And it was so cool because neither of us had any of the equipment. We were both living in Thailand and Chiang Mai. And it's so hard for somebody to imagine that's not living out there, but you don't order, you can't order anything online there. You, you just, they don't have online shopping, at least when we live there, except for maybe like, you know, uh, business to business or something like that. So we realized we had to build all these things and, you know, it just became a three month scavenger hunt and like research wormhole for finding out how to build our first forge, how to build our first two by 72 grinder and, you know, get an anvil set up. And I knew from the start, I wanted to do bladesmithing because of the fire element. Yeah. Um, and well, there's so, a connection between the glass blowing and the bladesmithing because it's like these inanimate objects being transformed by heat and then it's what you do with it once it's transformed. I can oh, imagine completely. that there's a very similar mindset. Completely. Oh, yeah. And so that was such a fun time in Thailand. I like I just remember that time so fondly because it was so funny, like both of us on motorbikes. Uh, and Ben is such a character too. And he's a, he's a, he's a knife maker now too. He, he, he became a full-time knife maker. Um, and so, you know, just day in and day out, like just finding the next shot because out there you don't go to like, I mean, there's some hardware stores, but in most cases there is an entire shop that just sells bearings and there's an entire shop that just sells like this thing or that thing. And so it was us on motorbikes, just scavenger hunting day after day and strapping like eight foot sections of steel to our motorbikes and <laughs> driving around the city. Gee, that sounds it was awesome. so freaking dangerous and not to mention hot as shit. And, you know, uh, but I mean, an adventure, it was such an adventure. I, I miss it so much, but it's also, I, I'll go back. I'll definitely go back. Not I, probably not to live, but I'll definitely go back. So how did you kind of, you, you're, I can, I can only imagine 
<laughs> trying to figure out where you're going to get stuff and then how do you, and then, but then how do you learn the technique? So technique was at that point, it was all online uh, with, you know, I would say that blade forums was the number one thing that I learned from. Hmm. Um, I had the book by David boy. I had blade forums and back then I wouldn't say YouTube that was like six years ago and YouTube definitely had some stuff. So I guess, oh yeah. Um, who's the guy from Texas? Walter Sorrells. Uh, oh, he had yeah. some stuff. Big one. Uh, He's a big one. Yeah. I came across some uh, Nick Wheeler videos, uh, but by far the, the main things that were helpful were like forum posts by Nick Wheeler and forum posts from other people, uh, Salem Strav, of course. Um, I started chatting with Salem back when, um, you know, I lived in Thailand and, the, the main thing I loved about Salem's post was he was like big on the machine stuff too. Like yeah. he did some awesome knife making, uh, you know, WIPs, work in progress posts, um, but uh, tons of machine stuff, which was super helpful. Also like uh, there's other people uh, posting lots of WIP stuff for machines and that was incredibly helpful for getting started. Um, and so the, the first day where I finally like, was able to like fire up my forge was the most insane feeling. Uh, again, when I first like fired up my two by 72 after it was cobbled together, like it felt so like the most victorious thing, especially like figuring it out out there. Oh, uh, DC knives. This guy in Canada had a great like post on building a two by 72 out of box tubing. Um, and later as I was living there, I got really into 3d modeling and I, I, I made a bunch of tools in a 3d modeling program and then had them had stuff made at machine shops and stuff. So eventually I did upgrade my, my tools quite a bit. Um, but you know, it was, it was just a race to get started. And, it sounds like, uh, it sounds like you were having fun. I was having so much fun. <laughs> it sounds like you were having way more fun than worrying about whether or not you're going to have to end up back in Reading. Oh my God. It was do you think every, you had the you think you had the hunger when you're you know you're cobbling you're driving around on a motorbike with with the steel tubing and you're trying to find a bearing and putting this together do you feel like you were desperate and hungry 100% Really I, Oh yeah like it's it's how I've always been with anything I'm getting into but I will I will so feel that hunger to finish that 2 by 72 and I simultaneously don't want to cut corners but man like I yeah, yeah, because I like building tools and machines. It, I have fun with it, and so, but I still had that like first knife in my mind. Is like, I was like, I can't wait to make my first knife. Um, I, it's I, I didn't crazy make, that your first knife you had to build all the equipment first. Yep. I Most never, people, you know, you you know, you make a you stock removal something with a file. You know. Yeah. You can you can, so the fact that you're like waiting and you're thinking yeah. about exactly what you're gonna do, but first. <laughs> <laughs> I have to make all the I have to step back and make all the equipment in order to make it. You didn't just grab some grinder off the street. You like mm -hmm. this was a real. This is a real. This first knife. I have a feeling that you felt was going to be very, very important. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just had I had such a strong feeling that I wanted to see that first knife completed. Um, <clears throat> and and so yeah, it you know. Uh, that carried me through building all that stuff. And I'd never like been in a knife making shop or bladesmithing or, or even blacksmithing shop for that matter, except for that 2016 spring conference. But, um, yeah, so I did end up because of that making a bunch of stuff that like I, I ended up needing to remake, but it definitely got me started. Were you disappointed in the first knife? 
no, I would say I was really happy with it, actually. Um, it's on my Instagram. It's like got like, you know, I, I can when I, I can completely see like why that knife looks like that as my first knife looking back. Uh, and I think it's all right. But um, no, I was happy with it. I was really I was really happy with it. Do you think um, you were influenced by being in Thailand or do you think you were kind of doing more mm. like what David Boy was telling you to do? Definitely not the David Boy thing. I, I wasn't very, I mean, nothing against him. I just, his work didn't really speak to me. He's um, got to be 90 years old. He's all right. He ain't, <laughs> he, ain't yeah. he didn't even know what a podcast is. Don't worry about David Boy. I'm with him. Yeah, at that point. We bought the book, David. You'll be okay. We bought the book. We both <laughs> bought the book. Don't worry. We did our due diligence. <laughs> and um, and to be totally honest, David, I am promoting it right now. So thank you. As a, thank there you. you as an order. Thank you. As yeah, an order. totally. David Boy. Come on, send the fruit ba- don't forget that fruit basket, David. Come on. That fruit basket. Yeah, you got one coming from him and, uh, and Abe as well, right? Yeah, I'm going to hit Abe, but we're going to have to talk about it. Yeah, Abe's going to have to send me a fruit basket too. So what gets you involved with, with Che Americano? And Can you kind of tell okay. us who he is? Yeah, so that's a really cool story also. Um, I, you know, in going down the wormhole of bladesmithing, I just started reaching out to, you know, looking for anybody who was making knives in Thailand because I, I just wanted to meet other knife makers. And so I I found a bunch of, um, I forget how, it was on Facebook somehow, but I found a bunch of Thai knife makers um, that I was astonished at, like, the quality of stuff they were turning out. Um, uh, I, I guess, like, I had this uh, maybe an unfair, like, notion in advance that maybe... I don't know. They didn't have the same styles that Americans were turning out, or, or, or you know, the Japanese. Uh, you know, they have their own, their own whole lineage and style as well. But um, a lot of the, the 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 Thai bladesmiths are 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 doing extremely meticulous work and super high end work. Um, and so um, I found a handful. I, I think I reached out to uh, Che and another guy named Tita Saksangmuang, who's a really great knife maker, and a handful of others. Um, but um, Che ended up being fairly close to me, about a 20-mile motorbike or 20-minute motorbike ride in a little town outside of Chiang Mai called Hangdong. Uh, and amazing. <clears throat> what's that? That's amazing. He's only yeah. 20 miles away. Yeah, and so I reached out to Che, and he was, like, the most responsive of everybody I reached out to. And I was I, – I just – you know, I'd, I'd studied a lot of Thai by that point. I was, I got really into the language and reading and writing and everything. So, um, there's not, you know, not everyone speaks English. And so I was able to write in Thai. So I reached out to Che and, um, you know, was just talking about, uh, like, Hey, like, do you teach classes? Like, is that something that you'd ever be into? And he wrote, sure. Uh, yeah, like, sure. Come come over. And I was like, I was like, great. Like how much would you charge for that? And he just wrote 0.00 baht. And about is like you know three pennies, and I was like I was like come on, <laughs> you know, like like how much would be like a fair rate for you? And he wrote zero point zero zero baht, and I was like, are you sure? And he was like he's like yes yes like time out now, and so uh, <laughs> and so uh, I went over there and I went over there for I think three days the first time I went over there, and uh, Che was so welcoming, uh, like. It was interesting by because at that point, like my tie was good, but it wasn't it wasn't great by any means, and so uh, I could definitely speak it and hold a conversation, but um, it would make me super tired to speak it all day. Uh, really? Like, yeah. Why? Mentally, like taxing to like uh. learn a new thing and learn it in another language, and so that three days was so cool because Che was so welcoming, 
And he just, we just launched it. I mean, Che just like completely just took his own time to show me all this stuff. And so that was when I started with learning. Nothing in return. These, and f- with nothing in return. And with nothing in return. With nothing in return. It was so crazy. And this is like, this is why the Thai culture is so incredible. They are so giving. Um, just like, um, I, I don't absolutely, absolutely know where that comes from. Uh, it probably ties back to some sort of like Buddhist philosophy. Um, well, it does for sure tie back to Buddhist philosophy um, uh, and ideology. Um, I don't know if you'd call it an ideology, but you know. Yeah, uh, culture. It's, 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 the, it's the culture. Yeah. And so just so welcoming and showed me so much. And, and in addition to what he was showing me, like it was the first time I got to be in a more established bladesmithing shop. Yeah. Uh, you know, somebody that at least had all the tools and, uh, you know, heat treatment oven and stuff like that. And um, and so in, in, in spending those three days there, um, you know, it was so fun. We'd like, Che loves coffee. His last name, he, he made his last name Americano. Okay. Uh, I just wanted to say that's not his real name. No, his real name is uh, so everyone in Thailand is a nickname and a long name. So his his Wait, full a name nickname, is Am- do they have a, a nickname and a long name? His nickname is Tham. His long name is Ampon Chutim, and his uh, you know re given uh, you know self nickname is Che Americano. And it's a good uh, name. Yeah, it's a good name. I love. It's I a lo- really good name. name. Did a good yeah. job. And so Che loves coffee. Every morning he would make like the strongest freaking coffee and just, we'd just get like jacked and uh, make knives all day. I'd try to keep up because I was also like having to learn this in Thai and like it, that, like it was always exhausting to me. And at night we would just, you know, have drinks and he would just talk to me about all these bladesmiths and show me pictures. And I didn't know who any of these people were for the most part. Um, so I learned most of what I know or knew at that time about the American bladesmithing scene from Che. Hmm. Surprisingly enough, I didn't know I didn't know who was doing good stuff enough back then. Aside from like, you know, I had the Walter Sorrell stuff. I think I I knew Nick Wheeler was doing good stuff. I'd maybe come across Salem stuff, but I think I I, th- I think I hadn't. But Che was the one who showed me like all of these people doing incredible work. Um, and so out there in a little village, Hangdong, uh, you know, learning everything about, you know, bladesmithing as well as like the American bladesmithing scene, as well as the American bladesmithing society. I didn't know that was a thing until Che told me about it. Um, huh. So uh, we became super good friends. Um, I, I ended up going out there all the time. Uh, and Che very, very graciously showed me. Um, all sorts of stuff. And I did, you know, I was trying to develop a bunch of tools at that point, like disc grinder and a really nice two by 72 and heat treatment oven. So I did try to like give that back and help with that. Cause he was, he was just helping me so much. Now, just out of curiosity, was he, was he selling his knives a lot or what, how was he making money? Shay was selling his knives to, uh, the American of the European market for sure, as well as in Thailand. There was a shop in Bangkok, uh, I forget what that was called, but it was kind of like the eating tools equivalent of like the Thailand, uh, or the Thai equivalent to eating tools. He's the most established Thai knife maker in near Chiang Mai, right? I mean, I was looking. I couldn't near really Chiang find Mai, a whole lot more. Most definitely. Uh, there's a guy named Tidusak Sangwon. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but uh, I wouldn't be able to tell you. <laughs> I mean, I it's, well, there's a tonal element too. I'm the worst it, person to ask. Are you kidding me? It looks like 
TDSX, Sangmung, something like that. But <laughs> um, I'm with you. Whatever you say, <laughs> totally. I, I, whatever you say, Nick. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm not your fact checker here. <laughs> Uh, he's in a town called Chiang Rai, uh, which is uh, about two to three hours away from Chiang Mai. Then you have uh, this guy named Hack, uh, who is a super good knife maker. Also, I mean, Tidesac, you know, Che, Tidesac, Hack, they're all they're all super high end, you know, great knife makers. Hack's doing some like really like high end, like kind of like I guess like Sam Lerquin, Nick Wheeler style uh, bowies and stuff like that. So, now, what um, I what I noticed about Che's work. Mm-hmm. is it really reminded me of what the guys in Australia are doing, the culinary guys. Yeah. There's this definite style of the – I'm just talking about the kitchen knives. Yeah. There's definitely this style where it's very much along the lines of the Japanese style. I'm not saying Japanese knives, but it's the yeah. hidden tang knives with the beautiful wood connection uh, with the ferrule and the – you know. I, I see a real strong connection maybe. I don't know why it would be that way, but like – you know, my buddies, uh, Mert Tansu and Kev uh, Slattery and all the guys in Australia. Oh, yeah. There is a style that they have. It's a very, you know, there's a there's forged scale on the, so, well, not with Mert, but on, you know, there's a lot of, you know, you keep the forged scale towards the spine and then there, yeah. it's more refined. And then you have these, I just saw this connection, this similarity between what Che was doing and what you were doing at that time with what's, yeah. what the kind of, the 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 nor the, I don't want to say normal, but what the style was in that area. Sure. Oh yeah, yeah. I totally agree. There is like a a, a Japanese style inspiration to uh, what Che was making, and I was you know I was getting influenced by Che quite a bit at that point, and and then the people that he was showing me as well, who were probably um, you know yeah also making some of those styles and. Um, and may I just, without, I mean, maybe I'm wrong and maybe I'm not thinking about it right now, but when I think about making culinary, culinary knives yeah. in that area, there's not a lot of full tang guys making full tang culinary knives. Am I wrong? Yeah. No, you're totally right. I would say most of it is hidden tang. And uh, right. Che has been doing a lot of full tang stuff with, uh, you know. Choppers uh, and stuff. Oh, definitely choppers. Uh, and also with his culinary knives, he's been getting some really nice, uh, like, Full tang. Uh, he's done some full tang integrals and some full tang uh, uh, knives with like uh, riveted bolsters as well that are really clean. Um, and why do you think that is? That why do you think that is? That you see a majority? Is it because the tradition of a bladesmith is to is the economy of material? And why would you waste all the material by sticking it in between two scales? Yeah, you know, I always really thought that that question. was that, that was the always, uh, you know, you used to look at European style knives. You know, I'm just talking culinary knives. Yeah. You know, when I was when culinary school, we were not we were not to, to bring in hidden tang knives. They wanted oh. us to use full tang knives. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I guess they felt that maybe the integrity was. I guess it is more. There is more integrity slightly. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think you are right that it is like an, an economy, like a material, like material economics or material economy, like, you know, not not using more steel than you need, I, which is why uh, my understanding is why the forge welded like bit tools and forge welded, uh, you know, cutting edge knives right. comes from because uh, it was a lot more laborious uh, and more difficult to produce like hardenable high carbon steel. Right. Um, and so... 
uh, yeah, I think you're totally right that that that's probably got to be the case why hidden tang knives are. Yeah, I guess the more traditional. Yeah, because uh, like when Che's and choppers and stuff, those are all full tang. Those are all full tang knives, obviously, because yeah. you want that. You don't want there to be any stress behind between the the tang and the ricasso. That yeah. I understand, but a culinary knife. I mean, who gives a shit, really? Yeah, you know, <laughs> che- I've never heard of. I've never once. I've never want none of my knives, but I've never once seen someone break a knife at the, at the, uh, at the Ricasso. I I have never seen it. So yeah, yeah, I I did see one at our shop. Somebody brought in a, a Japanese knife that had, but who knows what these people are doing to these knives too? You know, like somebody might be chopping with a chef knife or something like that, and like yeah. or like cleaving with a chef knife. Um, so so the the so what makes you want to come back to the United States? Because it sounds like it's like I mean. You got the, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, you have the, you have the, uh, IT basically your IT company. You know, yeah. I don't know if you call it that, but you're, you're, you're a graphic, web design you're, agency, your web design agency. That's the bread and butter that's allowed to kind of like, let you kind of blossom and develop into this, you know, motorbike, motorped, motorbike <laughs> riding, you know, carrying your steel supply on your motorbike, which I love. You know, I love the fact, I mean, you know, I, I've seen it all, but not that, you know, so, so, but what makes you decide to come back to the United States? Um, so that was a, yeah, that was a really difficult time in my life. Um, my, I had a really, we had a really ideal lifestyle out there. And when I say we, I, I mean, all of us, I, I, I met, I, I got, I met all these expats from around the world, all these various countries and. Europe, South Africa, uh, Australia, the U.S., um, you know, uh, and China and, you know, uh, uh, you know, everywhere, everywhere. And we all got so close. And so we were like a very tight knit community out there. And, you know, and my girlfriend at the time as well. And like all all of us, I mean, when you're living in a place like that, um, that's your support system. I mean, like. You, it's crazy because you don't, there's so many things you don't know how to do. Like, you don't know what, you don't know what to do if like, um, there's visa issues. Like you can just all of a sudden like get called in for some visa like discrepancy and you don't know who the hell to ask what to do about it or, or, and by the way, like visa runs, oh my God, that, that was like a crazy thing you had to do. Um, but you know, uh, what's a visa run? Oh shoot. Well, when you're living out there, your visas are issued to you in short bursts uh, repeatedly, and you have to fly or drive on an insane bus, <laughs> crazy-ass bus ride to Laos. Uh, flights got better as we were out there, but yeah, 14-hour death ride to Laos <laughs> with a bus driver who's driving overnight who's just pounding Red Bulls um, uh, to get a new visa. And, uh, and how, would you have notice, or would you would it be like... You'd know when your visa expired, but like uh, sometimes you would expect that you'd get an extension and you wouldn't get the extension. Uh, you know, you'd get a one to two month visa and typically get an extension on top of that. So you're looking at doing a visa run every one to three months in that case. Oh, so it's um, like 30 hours at least. Oh, three days. Yeah, three oh. days. You go to Laos, go to the capital, Wingjan, uh, stay there overnight, two nights. Uh, it was always a little adventure. You meet like some crazy ass people from around the world. I mean, you'd... Some people, you swear, they're straight up like criminals that are taking refuge in another oh, country. I'm sure. Listen, let's let's just, let's just be clear. Thailand isn't known for like the squeaky clean reputation. <laughs> I mean, come on. Of course, 
Of course, I'm the man. I got my. If I'm you and I'm, but I'm me. My hands in my pocket all the time, all the time. <laughs> well, all surprisingly, the time. theft is not theft is not a big thing, but there's all sorts of other crazy crap. Um, yeah, um, but but uh, yeah, visa runs, you know. So like that, you know, going back, that's the, all these people in your community. You get so close, like yeah, it's like you see these people all the time, and like you develop a different bond than what you have out here, and. I, you have great friends out here too. So nothing against my awesome friends out here, but it's just different. I mean, you're right. just in the middle of Asia and these are the only people that understand your upbringing. And so, uh, and you're all, your motivations the same. Yes. Yeah, totally. So you're like you're, the family, the familial qualities of the fact that you all have kind of like, you all left your own countries and now it's, you all have the same kind of direction. Yeah. 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 So what, what so, made it stop? What made the paradise yeah. stop? <laughs> yeah, it was it was great. And so uh, it was like March of 2017, I think. My dad, uh, my dad, his health was not doing great at that point. He had a. I just woke up one day. Uh, I think shoot, I think it was like the day after my birthday or something. Two days after my birthday, uh, <clears throat> woke up to a call that my dad had had a really really bad stroke and might die um and so uh i found myself in the middle of asia with my dad on on his deathbed uh and me needing to get back as quickly as possible in case he didn't make it uh, are you planning on a short trip or this is it uh no 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 like at that point i was still like planning on continuing to hopefully okay. maybe live in thailand but at that point, I didn't know what the fuck or what the right. hell was going on, and like, you know, I, I booked a plane flight as quickly as possible. Like, I was getting updates regularly on how he was doing and if he would make it or not, and uh, it was it was so insane. Oh. Uh, so I came back to the U.S. at that point for, um, I came back. He was in Reading, so he's at the hospital there. I came back. He pulled through. The first two days were the hardest uh, or the most likely that he might not make it. Um, and, uh, so yeah, so he was in Reading. I came back to Reading. That was the most insane blast from the past. Cause I had been living in Thailand for five years at that point. And hmm. I came back to my hometown that I grew up in, <laughs> that I had barely even been back to and was around all these people that knew us when I was younger. And like, it was such a mind fuck. And, uh, and it was just this like crisis mode sort of thing. And so I ended up staying in the U.S. I stayed in Reading for six months. He pulled through enough to like start speaking a couple words, and uh, then he got transferred to a rehab center in San Jose. And uh, <clears throat> I went down there. I just followed him, you know, trying to do whatever I could to help him. Uh, wow, pull that's through. a really generous thing of you to do. Yeah, it was it was nuts. I it it really fucked me up quite a bit. Um, in the obvious ways as well as just kind of like uh derailing me from like where i you know my my whole life you know right. uh and that that kind of created i guess inevitably and in like spending time apart created a chasm in in my relationship uh and also kind of like uh just just showed the holes in maybe like what it what what the reality of living abroad was 
And so um, <clears throat> went back to Thailand for a month, had to come back for my sister's wedding. It, this whole period, it was, it was the craziest time of my life for sure. Um, just flying around, like just completely chicken with his head cut off, fish out of water, however you want to say it. Um, and <clears throat> yeah, you know, realized I was probably going to have, not have to, but that I, I, I guess I just realized that family is kind of like in limited, <laughs> wow. their time here is limited. And, and so, uh, and also my mom and sister were like stuck with this like caretaking situation that I, I felt I, I didn't want to abandon them with. Um, I think that it's very generous for you to make that decision thanks. because you had paradise and you yeah. had, you had paradise. You had a group, you had your own non-family family. Yeah. And then you had Che Americano. Yeah. I, My and, man. Then, <laughs> and then you already learned the language Yeah, and you're, and you're driving around on a motorbike with the steel on the rack. You have, and then, and then to make that decision, I'm, and I have a feeling you were in flip-flops all the time. Let's just be clear. Dude, you don't even know what shoes feel like. <laughs> I have, years. listen, listen to me. I have my college roommate, Miles, uh, one of my, <laughs> such an important part of my life. He was from New Jersey, great guy. He introduced me to writing. He introduced me to Hunter Thompson. He he was an art major. We had the studio together. We had we were roommates together. Right. He goes to Indonesia for a year. A year. He comes back. He's like, I don't even want to wear shoes. You can't even make me wear shoes. It was like yeah. he had totally like he had been like, I can't. You can't expect me to wear shoes. I'm like, yo, you've only been out of the country for a year, and now all of a sudden you can't wear <laughs> shoes. Put some Dude, fucking that, shoes on. That and. It feels so weird to walk into somebody's house with shoes on. You stop at the door, take your shoes off, and then you realize people are walking into the house, and you're like, "This is weird." Like it just some feels really wrong about it. <laughs> but 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 the bottom line is is for you to make the decision. All right, well, I I need to be there for my dad and then my mom and my sister. Yeah, that really I would for some people like me who is who is who is an awful human being. I would have been <laughs> I would have been very resentful. I think I'll be honest yeah, that, with you. I would have been resentful not, about it. That was not entirely lacking either. That's I mean, yeah, this, no, I mean it's natural. Yeah, yeah, it's natural. It's just like why am I why am I in the put, being put in this position? I understand. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it's like on one hand, I I would hypothetically be abandoning my family. On the other hand, I was abandoning my relationship and you know my entire life out there. And damn. So um, yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy. And so I think your I think your I think your family owes you a fruit, fruit basket. If you don't mind me saying, <laughs> if you really want to really want to cut the brass tacks, I think your I think your I think your sister and your mom owe you a fruit basket. Dude, I'm gonna tell them. Yeah. I'm telling you, you let have them listen to this. Listen, guys. <laughs> Nick Nick deserves a, at least a fruit basket. <laughs> so okay, you you made the tough decision. I made I the tough decision, you. and then you have to bring all. And then how are you to bring all this stuff, all your equipment back to the United States? And now you're going to be a knife maker, in the United States. Yeah, well, that's so. I mean, it started before even that with like realizing that we weren't going to stay together, and um, then that you know also. <laughs> was in addition to the fact that I was leaving my home. So it was the craziest trifecta of like dad almost dying, dad being, you know, super fucked up. Um, right. Like, you know, like slow recovery uh, oh. style. Um, leaving my home of five years, leaving my relationship of six years. 
um yeah i just i just felt like i was gonna like die or something <laughs> i don't i don't blame you and yeah and so <clears throat> yeah but the great thing is is all you at the time all the things you know how to do are not destination dependent they're not like even your not business a single one not a single one it's all transferable so lucky in that sense yeah and that i mean not to go down the whole web design rabbit hole but it it's very much a job and it's very much something that's afforded me a lot of like certain types of luxuries right. uh, in the years that I've done it because of the location independence. Um, but yeah, so um, yeah, it's a good question. It's like, how do you get all that stuff over? And the answer is just calling all these, like I would call them sleazebag international shipping companies. Oh. Uh, they're, it, they're, they're not good to deal with. Um, and so um, I, <laughs> I finally, call, you know, I called around, like there's ones that pack your stuff for you. And it's like, this is another case where like, th thank God for the expat scene out there because you don't even know where to start looking. Uh, but yeah, had a, had a company like pack all my stuff up. I mean that, that last, those last months of me being out there where I was all of a sudden, uh, single and, you know, realizing I was leaving my home and all my friends and all that, like. It was it was the craziest time in my entire life. That I bet and when I did you and feel, when I arrived back. Did you feel um, like you were like it's it did you feel like the right I mean here no were you were you you were in Thailand when you were getting your stuff all packed up or you were in the United States? I was in Thailand. Yeah. I So I was like you're missing walking it around so much like before I was gone. Um, oh, couple I with, I, that's what I'm thinking cuz cuz all of a sudden the deadline of when you're leaving is 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 a foot. Yeah. And, you know, the feeling alone for, I think, anybody who gets out of a relationship of six years, pretty crushing. Feeling alone of anybody who, like, is potentially losing their parents is pretty crushing. And then the moving, you know, and and um, so I had the most insane life those last months. I I drank a lot. <laughs> I, I stayed up till 3 and 6 a.m. a lot. I had my I had my friends out there and I had this friend, Vicky, he's an Italian dude. He's probably like 15 to 20 years older than me. Who's got the most insane stamina ever and loves staying up. Uh, and so had a bunch of nights hanging with Vicky. We got crazy. And, you know, uh, it was, it was definitely like a, a, just a very like dark period of my life and how I felt. Uh, also that time of the year, Chiang Mai turns into a literal, smokehouse and the aqi is like 400 what's it AQI? was just what's that oh air what's... quality index it's like it's how california was when it was on fire last year um and so uh you know had this like kind of like trying to stay alive i literally felt like i was gonna die or something so like what do you mean just... like was it just out of debauchery no, not not in the physical sense, but just the the crushing like right. crushing weight of all those things that right. were happening. It's over. Yeah, you, you know it's I, over, you, and now you're just gonna burn the candle at both ends. Yeah, one hundred percent. I was just I was trying to not like lose my clients, and you know I was trying to like not be a total like wasteoid while also. But you were just, mailing like, it in. What's that? You were mailing it in. Yeah, I mean it was because the it's. It, it, it's the end is near and you see mm -hmm. the end you're gonna go home yeah well you're not gonna go home you're gonna go back to the united states yeah and then i got back here and i so didn't want to be back here when i was back like uh when you're surrounded by like this culture that you 
fallen in love with, like, and they're completely gone. It's just, <clears throat> there's just this, like, this, like, crazy lack of something. And, I'll, you know, your friends, your community, and I, I have amazing friends here, but I hadn't been around them much for five years, over five years, you know. I, I'd traveled for the most part of the year even before I lived out there for five years. So, yeah, and so, I mean... My super good friends, Brandon and uh, Keith, they came out and visited a couple times in Asia. And then I, you know, I came back and just moved to the Bay, like where, where they are. And so, you know, I had something, but like, damn, when I was back here, I was, I was, I was not stoked. I was, so I was. When you got back, were, did you make a plan of what you were going to do? Um, at that point, I was still kind of in like recovery mode, I would say. Um, so I was just trying to manage I felt like extremely anxious all the time. Hmm. And so, uh, yeah, I was just kind of like in this like recovery mode. Um, so yeah, just, you know, trying to, you know, not having a shop. I had my job, I had my web design stuff and you know, I'm so yeah, but that's not that, giving but. you, that's not giving you what you want, what you need. That's no, not like feeding your I, you know, I've used the fish out of water analogy for a couple other things, but it's the best thing I could think of in the sense yeah. of like, being back in the U.S. and also not having a shop because, like, I like creating stuff, even if it's not bladesmithing. Like my whole life, it's been that. It's been if it wasn't this, it was the glass, and if it wasn't that, it was the painting, and if it wasn't that, it was the cooking. And I, I, I did have cooking stuff, I guess, but I don't know. Like I just, I was, I wanted to do bladesmithing, and so, sure. um, not having the not having any creative outlet in that sense was pretty nuts, and. uh yeah, that whole period, that lasted probably six months after I got back, too. Like, I just felt so messed up. And, uh, yeah, and it started picking up. <laughs> but, man, it was nuts. Well, what did you, so how did you, I can't, I can't imagine. I, it, what's interesting about your life, based on what you've told me and based on what your work is, you know, there's so much creativity and there's so much ability to, Visualize what you want to do, figure out what you need to do it, and then you execute it. Yeah. But then, you know, we, you don't mind me bringing up the pipes again, either the pipes or the dependents, <laughs> and then the oil paintings, and then the knives. But when you're in Asia, something different, you're, something different is happening because it's, it's no longer about the thing. It's about the plate. It's about the place. And the yeah. thing is the bladesmithing, but can you get that same feeling that you were getting in Asia yeah. back in the United States? Because I would imagine yeah. that there's a lot of psychological connection between the bladesmithing and being in Thailand. You're not getting your steel on a, on a moped anymore. You know, now, <laughs> you know, it's like, I would just imagine, you know, the hustle and I'm sure, I'm sure it was like the price change between being in the oh, United God. States and being in Thailand was like, that was that's too. like sticker shock city. It's like, what? Nine million bot? What are you crazy? It's crazy. Now, like every sudden, million eats 20 bucks. You were getting 0, 0.0 bot from Che Americano. <laughs> and now all of a sudden you're getting hosed for a couple belts. <laughs> totally. Yeah, completely. Um, yeah. It, like that was crazy too. And I moved back to the Bay, you know, like I moved to like, like the, most ridiculously expensive place. Oh, oh, I mean, <laughs> yeah. you went from you went literally from the the, the most affordable place. I'm sure you ha you guys were having a real nice place to yeah. the most expensive. The Bay Area, at what? Were you say 2018, something like that? 
Uh, yeah, I got back 2018. Yep, June yeah. 2018. So it's like it's like the height. It's like it's it's all. Yeah. I, I can't. So so the sticker shock is like insanity. It's crazy. I lived a pretty minimalistic life when I first got back. Oh yeah, it you live nuts. in a sock drawer. I'd live in a sock drawer if I had to go from <laughs> Thailand to the Bay Area. Yeah, completely. Yeah. Um, and not yeah, to so mention, what, not to mention, I the Bay Area. I used to love San Francisco more than anything else. Yeah. The last time I was there, we saw like, like Charles Dickens crime. We saw like thieves. <laughs> We saw like oh. pickpockets. We saw, yeah. it. but it wasn't like that. I'm grew up in New York City. I've seen muggers and stuff like that. These were like, I went to a farmer's market and a and this kind of like thief grabbed. I was so super interested because this farmer's market had like oranges with like leaves on them. Like yeah. that's I could I know oh, right. here in New York it's all apples and you know cabbages <laughs> and stuff. So yeah. this guy did this move where he walks over and with one hand he grabs the orange throws it up in the air, catches it behind his back and walks away. And I was just like, I turned to my wife, I'm like, yo, these are top notch Charles Dickens thieves Dude, in here. This is real thievery. Thieves. It's like Steel thieves. Oranges. It's like yeah, yeah, in, in Cal in, no, in like in 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 uh, I, mean, I saw more crime in San Francisco in a three day week in the three days I was there than yeah. ten years in New York. It, I saw it changed so much, man. The drugs, it's, the homelessness. I saw guys pooping in the middle of the street, dude. and the cops weren't doing anything. It was just like, this is this is this is bedlam. San Francisco's bedlam, and dude. it's the most expensive. Yeah, it's crazy. It's so weird. Like it used to, you know, growing up, like not growing up, but like after I was eighteen, I lived in Santa Cruz. Um, I was close to San Francisco. I visited a lot, and you know. You had, you had artists everywhere, just living artist lives in SF. And that became a non-reality. Uh, yeah, while it can't be. Everyone's, wor everyone's working for uh, Jeff Bezos now or, uh, or, or Apple. Yeah, all the, all the tech companies. And, and that was kind of like a, a sad thing to see. Um, I had this period where I kind of disliked San Francisco for a while. And I came, I came back around and like, there's still fun stuff to do there. And there's still some nice uh, parts of it, but it's not what it used to be at all. And, and it changed so quickly. Like I remember while I was in Thailand, I would come visit. And every time I was back, I was amazed at how much it had changed every single year, every mm. single year. I think Uber, you know, Uber like was not a thing. I came back one year, all of a sudden there's all these like all these Uber cars driving everywhere and they, you know, come back another year and like, um, I, you know, like all of a sudden you hear like your friend's place that he's renting is worth double what, of what it was the right. previous year. And like, you know, keep coming back and, and being astonished at, at the changes. And so it's way different. Um, Oakland, Oakland's expensive too. Um, but I have, I have a great setup here. Like I, uh, you know, I, I, I got a great place to live and I got a great, shop and i i live for you know working in the shop like if i have a good shop i could live i don't know <laughs> i could live practically anywhere if i had a good shop so like um yeah our shop our shop keeps me here in, in addition to other things for sure but um so now you're you're this you're 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 getting back into it you're kind of understanding your how do you get involved with being a student of salem straub yeah, that's a, that's, 
Man, so Salem, like I, I, when I lived in Thailand, I'd message him stuff about like machine building. I think, I think most of what I ever messaged him was about building machines. And like, Salem's another one of those people, like Jay, who's just like, I, this is what I love about the bladesmithing community. Like when I was talking earlier, the difference between the glass and the bladesmithing community, it is so supportive. There, like, there's something about it to where people just want to help each other. And so like Salem didn't know who I was. I was some random dude on the internet, like wasting his time. And, <laughs> and he kept writing me back like helpful stuff. And, um, you know, maybe not a ton in the beginning, but, um, I'd always loved, uh, one thing with any maker of any art form, one, one thing that is like the most attractive to me is, is not just what people make, but it's their, um, their relationship to the art form and how they, like their their commitment to the art form and, and yeah. their dedication to it. And Salem always seemed like one of those people that is like blood, sweat and tears. Like he's building the machines. He's doing, he's, 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 made, he's creating the knives. He's coming up with new ways to do things. He's like, uh, you know, he's, he's part, he's actively part of the community in every like sense of it. Um, and so he's top uh, of the food chain too. P.S. Yeah, you know completely. I mean? Yeah, exactly. And so, um, I if just, you haven't, I just always, and if you haven't listened the episode I had, I don't know, it was three episodes ago or something. Oh, Salem amazing. with Straub, it was, it was like, it was, he was extraordinary. It was, people were, I was getting messages, people were, minds were blown because Dude. he was so forthcoming. And like, he, he, it also, that episode like humanized him because I mean, you mm -hmm. look at his work, it's exquisite. Exquisite isn't even the right word. There needs to be more than exquisite. I mean, he's top of the food chain in the United States. And for yes. him to like, create this image not create this image but like show his humanity and show what he had to go through and, and sh i got so many messages about people how inspiring he was because they were going through similar things and it was like yeah. the fact that he responded to you and it's just i mean you got you hit the best in the best i mean there ain't much you know i mean you're talking the best of the best right and I, I just got super lucky uh i got lucky in multiple reasons that salem like let me come up because uh you know, so that was, I, I probably messaged him in December before I went up. I went up in, uh, no, I went up in March, beginning of March of 2019. And so, um, you know, we, we chatted a bit. He said I could come up and, you know, he, he gave me like whatever he felt like charging for it. And, it, you know, it all it sounded 0. good. wasn't 0.0 bot. It wasn't 0, 0 bot, but it was, it was, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it, was it was very generous. And like, I mean, Salem, yeah, he's worth, he's worth so much. And so, um, <clears throat> you know, so we worked all that stuff out and like, I was like, would it be asking too much if I came up for nine days? I mean, so it's arrogant practically to ask. Well, but, but that's your, but like, yeah, but that's your move. That's, that's the move. I'm sure you did that in Thailand all the time. I did. I, I I'm sure did, that was I, a standard, that was a standard Thai move. Totally. I just, I just want to, I love immersive experiences and my favorite thing ever is to get better at the thing I'm super into and I want to do it in an immersive form. So I was just, at first I was like, could we do it for like a good amount of days? Like, and he's like, do whatever you think. And I was like, what do you think about like nine days is more than a week, like two weekends in a week. And he was into it. And, and he so he was into it. Yeah. Oh my God. And God so bless. I booked a ticket and everything. Seriously. God bless him. And Dude, it was such it was such a fun experience. Uh, so keep in mind that this is March like first 
wait, 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 no, no, no. It's it's early March 2019. So <laughs> I I flew up, like, you know, met Salem, he picked me up at the airport. We went back home, met his family. He's got an awesome family. Uh super nice. We hit it off quite a bit. Um <clears throat> and um we just did like these it was exactly what I was hoping for. Like Salem's such a cool dude. We hit it off, like had a lot of fun listening to some crazy like podcasts and, you know, good music. And, you know, he had just gotten his Baudry set up not too long before that his big 300 pound Baudry. And so, yeah, you know, we, I wanted to learn like crazy mosaic Damascus uh, to the degree that Salem was doing it. I mean, he's, he's probably like one of the biggest people changing the game. Um, probably, in the world, uh, as far as Mosaic Damascus is concerned, just in that he's always trying to, with like every piece, like, like push, push the boundary. And so, um, yeah, we, we went over some fun patterns, like, uh, pattern potential and work something out. And he showed me so many tricks, like got to talk about somebody else. who's like just super generous with like not protecting, uh, whatever they're like, you wouldn't call it like IP, but what their tricks and their like secrets and all that are like, Salem is not only an open book, he like, he like openly tries to tell you everything. Well, um, that's what's interesting about him is because his experience back in, in the last episode, he was talking about how Ken Onion gave him yeah. everything. I mean, when he was in Hawaii and he found out that Ken Onion lived like three blocks away, yeah. he just, it, Ken was just so supportive of him that it's like, you got to pass it along, right? Right. Yeah, I, and that, that is something that I think a lot of bladesmiths feel, and that's why that is a thing, is because it's such a niche thing, and there's so many aspects and machines and skill sets that, like, once you learn it, you want to at least share it. So, like, I mean, you you needed help to get there, and right. to be able to pass that help on is, is, is yeah, it just keeps it alive. Um, and so, yeah, Salem was just super generous with all of that. We were having a ton of fun. You know, he lives like, I don't know, 20 or 30 miles, maybe south of the Canadian border. And so like, this was early March. It was like kind of cold, but nice in the beginning. And like, we were foraging and we were keeping ourselves warm with the, you know, the fact there was a forge running for a lot of those days. Um, second half cold front came through. Oh, but before that we got, we went on like a cool field trip to meet Ed Shamp up in, up in, I forget exactly what the town is, but he's an old, he's an old school Damascus guy, like, uh, came up with like Steve Schwartzer and stuff. Um, so we paid him a visit, like several hour drive, got to see the, like, I think called the Okanagan Valley or something. Um, but gorgeous three hour drive. So we did a fun field trip one day. Um, <clears throat> and then the second half, you know, it's kind of like right after that, it got cold as shit. And it was like in the twenties, uh, like, and you know, we were out there doing the second half of like, we'd had all the, we'd made all this Damascus, like, and he taught me so many things. Um, and, and then we were doing all the fit up stuff and grinding. And so nothing was keeping us warm at that point, except for like little sessions of like forging arrowheads and forging tongs and stuff like that. And so we keep ourselves warm by creating random projects. Yeah. But, uh, so what's really funny about this whole thing was so early March, 2019, as I was up there, stuff started getting really weird on the global scene. Uh, that's when COVID was starting to slam down. And every day we were March, like, March, 2019. Yeah. No, I oh, sorry. So. 2020. I, yeah. yeah. 2020. <laughs> um, so yeah. Um, 
And so, you know, as we were there, these were the days leading up to the actual lockdown. And we also had this kind of like epicenter-ish sort of thing happening in That's Seattle. That's right, so, Olympia. Yeah. And so I'm up there in um, OMAC, uh, OMAC, Washington, got to fly back through Seattle. And we're just watching the news every day as we wake up. Just shit is getting super freaking weird. People had already started like panic buying and stuff at that point. And we were like... I even like placed a Costco, a remote Costco order to my house from up there. <laughs> like, Wait, this is, so happening. this is March of 2020. This is March of 2020. Yeah, I was saying 2019, and so, I was wrong. Yeah, yeah. no, 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 no. I'm, I'm, ta- I'm talking March because I, I, the first time we'd, I mean, I've said this on multiple podcasts, but the, my wife worked with someone who had connections in China, and they were talking about, some, they weren't, they didn't say it was COVID, but they were talking about it. Yeah. Uh, in December. So December of yeah. 2019 is when we first started talking about talking about it, and then in January, my wife and I were having a a daily morning. I wake I wake up with her at like 4:30 in the morning. I get her out the door, and we have like a, you know, like a meeting every morning talking about what's going on in the world. Yeah. Every day we were talking about what's going on from from the end of December all the way through, and if it, and Mert Tansu started posting about in January or February about the toilet paper shortage and I ordered yeah. I ordered to, I ordered a case of toilet paper in <laughs> in the beginning of February and my family thought I was crazy until <laughs> until we needed it and they were like fucking genius and I said I'm saluting Mert Tansu because I didn't know about that shit until he said it. So I can totally. only imagine March Yeah. March was was I mean Matt March was as, for, I know from our end March was as bad as it as it, it was the it was a really bad spot for us so I can only imagine it was like right. trying to travel for you and that was the thing I was wondering if I was going to be able to get back like because I flew up there and so I actually you know stuff was getting super weird but we finished it out uh, I flew back two I think it was two days before the statewide lockdown happened <sighs> and so and then um. And, you know, and then there was no possibility of like studying with anybody for, you know, the foreseeable future. And so I got so lucky and that I got to do that to begin with. The Salem was into it. And secondarily that I got it, I snuck in right under the radar. Right. Um, and when I came back, I <laughs> I had this really interesting thing happen to where like none of my design clients were hitting me up for anything. So I had this like... I came back with all this inspiration. Stuff was crazy for sure. But I was like, well, I'm just at least going to go down to the shop and see what happens. And so I came back with all this inspiration. Um, I had nobody contacting me for work for like over a month. And that was also an amazing time. Uh, as crazy as it all was, it's kind of like a uh, a pretty incredible time just to just like make Damascus and make crazy stuff and do whatever I wanted without people like, hitting me up for work stuff all the time. I tend to think that these kinds of moments are moments where creativity has a really chance to blossom. I would have thought, you know, if this was the 1960s, you know, you're talking about some of the greatest music there ever was came from the, you know, the, the, the turmoil in the 1960s. Right. So you, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, maybe now with this whole thing, we will have some good music. I don't think so. It's not, the creativity <laughs> is, is a completely different type of creativity. Yes. Um, it's, you can almost say it's like, as a, as a society, 
it's not as inspiring as it was back then when it was of value, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I, I will say that that time, March, I guess it was March, is when on Knife Talk, we started to do, we knew that things were going poor, poorly. Yeah. And we started to do extra episodes to kind of like keep people's mind occupied. It was like, we, content, we knew that content was something that was like people really needed. And we started doing that. And then that actually made me and Craig talk about starting the Makery channel, the Makery yeah. network in uh, yeah. last, I guess it was last, it was last April, last May. Yeah. It was definitely last April because we, I started doing the first episodes of this podcast. I was trying to bank him in May, but I mean, I, I just think that this is such an, this is an extraordinary part of our lives. Uh, tragic but at the same time it's like you do you will find that there is a lot of incredible creativity has come out of it right you know? yeah yeah having yeah i guess just those heightened moments where like for me it was just everything shutting down as far as I, i'm so used to like monday tuesday wednesday even thursday just getting bombarded with emails. I, I I joke that I'm a professional emailer for you know my whole design job these days because right. like I'm I kind of run it like an agency at this point, so I'm just fielding emails a lot of the time. So it's it's definitely mentally like distracting, and I still try to get in the shop as much as possible. Like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you know I can go in there more. Uh, even Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, when I'm done with that work, I'll try to jet down there. I just I just do whatever I can to get in there, but. The fact that all of that just went completely silent was like a very like almost like magical feeling um, for probably up to like probably six weeks or so. Yeah. Um, and it was, yeah, it was, I mean, it's just a silver lining for sure. As crazy as all was, that was, that was cool. Now I have a, I have an interesting, not an interesting theory, but I, I, I'm fascinated by how your work in Thailand was so much different than your work now after spending time yeah. with, with, with Salem. So at first I thought when you said, when you were talking about coming back and are you, were you, were you able to feel the same way uh, about knife making that was a part of your, your, your time living in Thailand and now having to come back to the United States, I feel like the difference between the work you were, do, you're doing now and the work you were doing then is, is, is enough of a buffer that you're you're able to kind of not only gain the the love of what you're doing, but it is totally different. You know, yeah. I mean, I know I know I noticed when I was looking at the work that you're doing now and the stuff that's kind of that you learned from Salem and stuff like that. I all of a sudden I figured out how you guys were. I didn't realize that you guys were forge welding on your bolsters. It oh, took yeah. me a mm -hmm. while to figure that move out, and I was like, it was a eureka moment because I was like looking at some <laughs> of what Salem was doing. I was like. How this motherfucker not get any distortion in that bolster? And then I was just like, God damn it, he's forge welding on the bolsters. You yep. fold forge welding in the, the pattern of the and it makes you realize the difference between what you were doing over there to what you're doing now. Yeah. I it's so so some of it was around equipment and some of it was about, I guess, like just the degree to which I understood the art form. But um yeah, when I, you know, over there, I, my anvil, you know, as part of like gearing up by just making everything, my anvil was a chunk of steel, six by six by 12 chunk of steel that I ordered from a steel factory and asked them to harden it for me. Um, and, you know, I had one hammer uh, and one pair of tongs that was the first thing I ever forged um, after I built my forge. 
Um, but it was all like a product of kind of, I guess what I was like, what I knew how to do and what I was able to create with. And so I, I made my first int- full tang integral knife out there by hand on that anvil. And that was a huge benchmark for me. Um, without, you know, just doing it all with a hammer. I didn't even know you should radius the edges of an anvil back then. So I, they had freaking sharp, yeah, <laughs> hot bites, rolled steel lots edges. Of bites. Right. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I, I guess when I came back, like, I think the main thing was over there, I was exposed to like the, the industry or whatever you want to call it through Che. And so I was kind of mimicking his setup and, you know, coupled with other stuff that, you know, we, we eventually had disc grinders cause found out how to make those. And so we were adding stuff to the arsenal of tools, but I, I was kind of like doing more of like what was available with those tools. And then I came back and we got into, you know, or I got into Jim's shop, which, uh, all of a sudden I have one of the nicest power hammers I've ever seen, 300 pound nasal three B, uh, that all of a sudden I can just use whenever I want. That was crazy. Uh, I remember the first day I ever got to use that was just like, uh, it's just, it's, it's so cool. Uh, it's so fun. Um, um, immediately made a, a Damascus pattern with that. Um, we also have a couple other power hammers in the shop and then I brought, we didn't have a lot of bladesmithing equipment. So I actually did bring a lot of bladesmithing equipment to the shop. So it, it's cool cause I had all these awesome like blacksmithing tools and then did have that bladesmithing equipment fortunately that I had developed while I was in Thailand. And so, yeah, I think there was like, I guess just a maturity thing after having access understanding the art form and the skill sets a lot better and having access to all those tools and just like understanding blacksmithing better. Um, I didn't, I didn't, I was, I was 100% into bladesmithing when I was in Thailand. I didn't have any real interest in blacksmithing. When I met Jim, I all of a sudden became very interested in blacksmithing. And, um, so I've, I've had a lot of fun incorporating like, forged and, and, and blacksmith inspired elements into, into knives now as a result. I love that there's these different, these, these different moments in time and how it, and the place and how they influence the work that you were doing. I think that's such a, that's a, that's an opportunity that a lot of, you know, people don't get, which is like how the culture, how the culture and though how you're living influences the work that you're making. Yeah. And that to me is like, that's a very unique situation because, you know, a lot of times you hear people, they're not like, you know, going to a foreign country and learning how to do something and then building everything out there and then starting all over in a completely different country with the same similar skills. But then it's, it's a different, everything's a different approach based on what you can have, what you have and what you can get your hands on. Completely. Yeah. You know? Yeah, completely. All right, I got some questions for you yeah. before we wrap this up. I love Thai food. Thai food, <laughs> Thai, I, growing up, my dad got me eating Japanese food all the time. I love Japanese food. Yeah. And I never completely. got Thai food until after college. Yeah. Because I, my studio in Greenpoint, had, Greenpoint, Brooklyn, had the best Thai restaurants. And my, my mm. boss at the time brought me to one. I was like, I had never eaten Thai food before. I yeah. know what Chinese food tastes like. So used yeah. to go to my we used to go to Chinatown all the time. I know what Japanese food tastes like. 
I don't know what Thai food tastes like. And then you get the pad thai and then you get the, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. I loved Thai food. Yeah. If you were to tell me, tell me, let's pretend I don't know Thai food. I love mm -hmm. it. I don't know the names of all the names. And I also, you know what, with all these different countries and stuff like that, all of them, I try not to get so like I know the pronunciation of everything. Like, yeah. I'm still like if I'm at a restaurant, I'm going to point to, I'm going to, my family's going to laugh at me if I say the the thing I think it is, you know, <laughs> so I just usually point to the menu. Totally. If if you're you're talking to the listeners of the Full Blast podcast, what mm -hmm. are the if they go to a Thai food restaurant, what are the three unsung heroes in Thai cuisine that they would be surprised as good as mm. it is? I'm glad you call it unsung because yeah, because like green papaya salad is one of my favorite things of all time, but it's like it ain't gonna to the regular you know you know I don't know foreign devil us white us foreign devils I. That might not be the most the first thing that you're gonna pick. You yeah, know? I'm glad you call it unsung. Okay, this is a very complex subject for me. Let, I I won't make it too long, but let's just start. You got three. By, you got three. Th tell the listeners three unsung classics that you have mm -hmm. to get when you, your Thai food restaurant. I'll just say that Thailand has four regions, and all the food is very different in those four regions, and we typically only get Central Thai food in the U.S. Okay. So first of all, Northern Thai food. Look for Northern Thai food because it is so special. I would say, okay, lab. Is it just called lab? It's pronounced like that, but it looks like L-A-R-B. It looks like larb. It okay. sounds unappealing, but it's this kind of like, it's this kind of like minced, uh, minced sort of like meat with spices and uh, like shallots and like little like fried shallots as well and garlic and uh, some lemongrass, like, and there's different types of lab, but, um, you eat it with uh, sticky rice and fresh herbs and it's so freaking good. All right. So um, we're going to have larb. What else? Uh, cow soy is another one. Uh, it's known in the U S as Chiang Mai noodles, but oh my God, it's so good. What's going um, on with that? Is so, that different than, is that very different than pad thai? Oh yeah. Completely different. It's different from pad thai. It's from curries. It's got elements of, it's an egg noodle. Uh, with kind of like a yellow curry sort of sauce. Uh, and then it's top, it's got this like slow cook, like chicken leg in it. Uh, and then it's topped with uh, fresh shallot, pickled mustard greens and, uh, fresh dried chilies. And then these fried noodles and damn, it's so good. And I what's made it that for one Salem. called? It's called cow soy, uh, K-H-A-O-S-O-I, uh, two okay. separate words. Okay. And then now your third one. Okay, third one. Oh my god, this is so. And think hard. about the stuff that we, uh, you know, like my friends in Iowa can get. You know. Okay, well, let's go. Let's do a Central Thai one then. Okay. I mean, it's hard to beat a good red curry. I mean, really, that's just like such a good one. Yeah. Um. Uh, this is a more fun one, maybe. Um. Masaman curry, slow cooked chicken with potatoes and like a peanut, a peanut sort of curry broth. I've heard of that. Um. That's a really cool one too. Mm -hmm. Um. But damn, it's hard. I mean, from Central Thai, it's hard. It's hard to be a good curry. All right, there you are. Well, what's new? What's next for you? What's next for you? What's what's the what are, what the what are the plans for the for this new year? I mean, I I'm obsessed with being able to afford my own shop one day. So I've been really focusing. Or I guess let's say I'm obsessed with trying to be as much of a full time bladesmith as I can. Living in the Bay, that's super hard, but I'm doing whatever I can to try to figure that out. So um, whether it's like working more on web to save up, to buy a, you know, 
I don't know, buy a shop or buy land or whatever. I just want to spend as much time as I possibly can in the shop. So um, from a bladesmithing perspective, um, damn, more mosaic Damascus uh, integrals, full tang integrals or hidden tang integrals. But I'm really, I love the the pursuit of creating, the pursuit of pushing the boundaries as much as possible with Damascus um, as the artistry of it, as well as just like the, the form and function of, of, you know, a really well-made knife. Um, and now you're, and now you're in with the, the, the eating tools boys. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Abe's, Abe has been awesome. Um, so that's, we had a great response to that. Um, you know, Abe waited for the right moment to make the introduction. He takes all the photos and you know, I've done a bunch of photography, but I, I suck at just actually taking the time to make, to do photos. I, there's some, I, I just don't want to do it. And so I've been bad at documenting my work. And the fact that he actually creates these gorgeous photos of the pieces is, is, is so he, cool and so worth it. I didn't realize he was doing the pictures. He does an awesome job. He does an awesome job. His, 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 his lineup is ridiculous. Yeah. He's got a cool, I mean, it's, I'm very honored to be part of the family uh, with with some of those other guys. I met um, I met I got invited I met him Nick Nick Anger invited me to a restaurant in the sit in New York and I Will Griffin was there uh, Brian uh, from France was there what's his last name you know what I'm talking about uh, He's the Brian man. from France <sighs> I, I, sure I, I, I feel terrible Brian Brian's the man. I'm going to get it right now. I'm going to get it because he's such a good dude. <laughs> oh, I am so sorry. Is it Adonis? Adonis? He's French and he's making some awesome stuff. Brian Raquin. That's oh, what it is. Raquin. Okay, Raquin Coutier. He's, he was there. He's awesome. Oatly knives. There were some Oatly knives there. Oh, rad. And then yeah. now he's got, he's representing you and Salem and Charlie Lionheart. And, and uh, he's got some Nick Rossi knives going on. Oh, sweet. I mean, it. he... Abe's doing it, man. I know. I know. He he's, you know who? Gave, you know who told me how good of a guy he is, and I was like, I didn't know. It was T Tomer because he deals with Tomer and Bodner mm. all the time. Oh yeah. And when yeah. I was in Barcelona, we were talking about Abe, and Tomer couldn't stop saying nice things about him, and I was just like, that's good enough for me. But I got to <laughs> finally meet him. He was great. He was terrific, and and uh, you know, I like what he's doing. I always get nervous for for knife makers when they when they have brokers. Yeah. I I usually. I usually would frown on it, but after talking to him and seeing the guys that he's representing and only hearing good things from all you knife makers, no one's, trust me, when something bad happens, I, for some reason, I usually get hear, hear about it. Yeah. I only hear good things about Abe and eating tools. So yeah, God he's bless, super helpful. And you know, I think Abe's also like really into like elevating the people he's working with. And so that's, that's super helpful. I mean, a lot of us, I feel like as bladesmiths, you need to do so many things and wear all these different hats that like, you just get choked out for time to do some of this stuff. And so I feel like some of us are bad at marketing ourselves because we're bad at marketing ourselves. And some, some are just, I, there's just not enough time to do it all. And so yeah. it's, it's, it's really nice to leave it to him. Takes all the photos and he's got the connections. He's got this, like, I don't know how many years old, but he's got the connections. He's a young too, guy. So. young guy. Yeah. Yeah. Look at you, Nick Anderson. I knew this was going to be a good one. You're a fascinating yeah, was... guy. You have quite a story. Thanks, man. 
I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thanks. I yeah, I so appreciate you having me on. Of that was course. a lot of fun. You're gonna you come back and we'll have you back on. No problem. Guys, awesome. listen to me. Nanda oh how did you why did you come up with the name Nanda Knives? That's what I wanted to know. It's not as cool as it would Is it because seem. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I used to just my design and art kind of business was Nick Anderson art and just crushed it down into Nanda. So there you go. It just worked out. I liked how it sounded. It sounded like Panda or something. You know, it's it, it rolled off the tongue nicely to me. So it was a combination of my previous like form and that. P.S. My family are are uh, type fans. Fonts are our thing. We love fonts. Yeah, me too. You get big props for the Nanda Touchmark font. Thanks. Big props. Thank you. It little, it's you... got a little bit of a Thai flavor. Am I wrong? It absolutely does. There's some there influence go. there. There you go. Yeah. What are you going to do, everybody? Listen, I want you to go follow Nanda Knives. I want you to go watch what he's doing. I want you to support him. He's a good dude. Great guy. Uh, you got the, you got, you know who told me you were a great guy? Leah. Oh, sweet. Leah Arapach says, Nick is the best. You got to get him on. I'm like, okay, no problem. So go follow Nick, Nanda Knives. Follow Eating Tools too. Because at some point, Abe's going to have to send me a fruit basket. And Nick, <laughs> I think you might have to send Che Americano a fruit basket. He definitely needs a fruit basket. Go follow Che Americano. Follow tell che him Americano, too. Guys, everybody go follow Che Americano. Tell him, he, tell him Nick needs to send him a fruit basket. And support his ass because he's doing good shit, too. He's che doing so it for 0.0 bot. Yeah, 0.0 Yeah, unbelievable. Not anymore. I'm telling you, Che, if you're listening to this, you got to raise your prices, baby. I can't, I can't, I can't have any more Americans showing up and just you getting, you getting hosed. I can't do it. I can't do it, Nick. Listen, listen, go guys, go listen to, uh, listen to this podcast and go also just to let you know, Knife Talk's got a caller line now. I hated. I was so freaked out, and we had such a good time. If you go to Knife Talk, go follow Knife Talk on Instagram, Knife Talk Podcast on Instagram, and on Fridays at three thirty EST, we're taking calls on IG, and it's fun. And you can be on our show, and we'll, we can tell dick jokes once in a while. Maybe <laughs> we'll see. Then I want you to go over to Axwax, put in Full Blast Ten, Axwax.us, put in co uh, promo code Full Blast Ten, get yourself ten percent off on the beautiful axe wax thanks again guys and then next week we got make everything shop good old chris zepp's gonna be here chris zeppieri awesome. one of my good friends he's long island he another fan another long island's best leah is montauk's best but chris might be sea cliff's best so with that said guys do me a favor go to wherever you're listening to this hit subscribe and give me a review it helps okay please um once again Nanda Knives, Nick Anderson. Thanks again, Nick. Thanks so much, Jeff. That was awesome. You're the man. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.